In the book of Mark, he's already a full-grown man. And he comes into the region of Galilee and he submits to the baptism of John to fulfill all righteousness. And then he begins to start blowing holes in Satan's kingdom. He's healing the sick. He is casting out demons left and right. He's going all over into the outer lands of the Galilee region. And in the cities, when they can't, they press in on him, he finally heads out into the highways and byways. And yet they still keep coming. Last week, we looked at the authority of Jesus. How he had authority over sickness, over demons, and over the powers of darkness. And he had authority as the Son of Man. Today, we're going to be looking this week at conflict that takes center stage. And we're going to see that as we read Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. Our scripture reading this morning, though it may say in your bulletin 28, it's 22. Overambitious was the preacher this week. Uh, so, gonna be, uh, we're going to be looking at and reading for our scripture reading. It's on the screen as well. and You can follow along in the Pew Bible or your device or your own Bible if you have one of these. Whichever is appropriate uh, for you. Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 1 through verse 22. Hear the word of the Lord with careful attention. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Now, by the way, it's not his home in Nazareth. That's home in Capernaum, probably Peter's house, most likely. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word of God to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, 
so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowds were coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, Levi's house or Matthew, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to them, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast? While the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. And the new from the old. And a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God always remains. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Father, we've read your word and I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and enable us to understand its message and some of its application for us today. Father, we would see Jesus. We would long to hear the soft sound of sandal feet as our Savior walks among us. In the power of the Holy Spirit and through his inscripturated word that we have read. Teach us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the first century A.D., the Jewish religious leaders had a very tentative relationship with the powers that were. Of course, we're talking about the Roman Empire and its governance of the province of Judea. The Romans basically uh, divided up Palestine as it was, would later be called in three areas. Jerusalem, the uh, Samaria, and the Galilee. And uh, so, but there was a tentative relationship. It was very prickly. 
the Jews really hated the Romans, but they were needed to get along and they needed to get certain favors. And so they were, became very political. Their leaders became very political. They were shrewd, but nervous politicians. And the one thing they sure didn't want and wouldn't countenance is any upstart hick from someplace like Galilee going out and doing all kind of things that weren't authorized by them. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus was doing. He wasn't coming to the rabbis and the scribes and the Pharisees and saying, hey, please, would you, would you mind, would you give me permission to go heal somebody? No. Jesus had authority in himself. He's already said that. And he states it again here. The beginning of Jesus' early Galilean ministry qualified as rocking the boat in a big way. And this led to a number of conflicts. Even right here in the very early part of Jesus' ministry. Those would intensify as we will see later on. But this began a series of conflicts that we're going to see today and actually again next week. There's actually five total conflicts. And it's interesting today that each one of these conflicts that we're going to see in our outline today that we read in our text are all about a question. There's a central question being asked. An accusing question. Not an innocent one, but one that is making an accusation or somehow casting derision on what Jesus is doing. So today, we're going to consider our passage under these three headings. The pardon, the purpose, and the problem. The problem that is there because of who Jesus is and because of who the religious leaders are. So, let's look at the pardon. That's basically, as I read, and again, not going to read over again all the parts, just a couple of references that are key to this discussion where this is a narrative. We're trying to catch and stay in the flow. This is verses 1 through 12. As a result of the healings Jesus already had done, Last week we saw those healings, all kind of people that he healed. Uh, Peter's mother-in-law, the leper, others that were being healed by Jesus. But particularly the leper, Jesus, remember, told him, said, now don't go tell anybody. In which he proceeded to run out and blab, you know, to everybody, screaming from the hilltops, Jesus of Nazareth healed me. Didn't follow instructions. He was too, too overjoyed, too excited. He couldn't keep it, keep it in. So especially because of that leper who wouldn't keep his mouth shut, people were now just pouring in on Jesus. They were coming out of the woodwork to see Jesus, to hear him, just to be near him. And some were coming for more than a sermon. A lot were listening to his teaching and to his preaching. We see that in the text right here. And yet some had other desires. They'd heard about the healings and they loved their friend. And so a group of dedicated friends unable to get close to Jesus decided to tear a hole in likely Peter's house in the roof to bring their paralyzed friend so he could drop in on Jesus. Literally. <laughs> drop in on Jesus. They let him down. 
right in Jesus. I don't know what would happen if, you know, if I was preaching in that, I, I guarantee you, uh, I would be taken aback. I don't know exactly how I'd respond, but Jesus knew exactly to respond. He already knew this man's needs. He knew exactly what he was there for. He knew what they were hoping he would do. And yet, at first blush, it seems Jesus may not have, may have somehow gotten the cart before the horse. Here's Jesus talking about the forgiveness of sins when it's blatantly obvious this man needs a healing. He needs somebody to come and make him whole. Relieve him from the prison of his suffering that he's been in. And yet Jesus goes straight to the question of the man's sins. He addresses that. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. You can imagine probably the guy's friends and maybe the guy himself were like, uh, yeah, thanks, uh, um, but is there more? You see, the statement certainly aroused the ire of the religious critics around Jesus, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the professional clergy and lawyers of the day. And here's their first question. Why does this man speak like that? Who does he think he is is really what the question is asking. We know there's only one person that can forgive sins, and that's God. And I know this hick can't possibly be God, therefore, this is crazy. Now, the scribes were right that no one could forgive sins but God. The problem was they didn't understand to whom they were speaking, they didn't know. That they had God in their midst. The eternal son of the blessed God. They didn't know. And so, listen again to verses 8 through 10. And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. <laughs> Wouldn't you have liked to have seen that? The, 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 the slack jaw dropping look on the Pharisees and the scribes on their faces when Jesus said that. And then Jesus proceeded to do exactly what he said. He said, get up. He healed the man and the man goes skipping out, carrying his pallet with him along with his other buddies. And they go again telling everybody how he had been healed. But here's the really important question. Wonderful story. Encouraging story. The really important question is why did Jesus start where he did? Why did Jesus start with the man's 
need of forgiveness instead of the obvious pressing need. Well, it's very simple. Jesus knew something that the cripple and all those around him didn't know. And unfortunately, something you and I have trouble understanding. And even if we understand it, we have trouble remembering in the moment to do it. And be aware of it. We, Jesus knew, we have a bigger problem than our presenting circumstances and conditions would suggest. But you see, we're very human. We just want what's wrong to be fixed now. We'll worry about that other stuff down the road. Yeah, I, I know I need to get right, but, but, I, but I just want God to bless me now, and I want Him to heal me, and I want Him to do this for me, and I want Him to do that. That's how we function. That's our innate, natural course. But Jesus knew that was completely wrong in terms of the priority. Jesus understands our problems, but he also knows the greatest problem is not your and my suffering, but it is our sin. And until that is dealt with, Everything else, everything else will all eventually be of no significance or importance. Jesus knew that that it's our sin that is wrecked and that our suffering is part of the result of what our sin has done. But he needs to go to the root of where it grows, not start clipping out on the very extremes of the branches Picking off the fruit, go to the root of our problem. And Jesus loved this man enough and cared for him enough and knew that if he dealt with that, the other would come in its own time in God's providence and appointment. In this case, it was immediate. For some others, it will not be. But which is most important? Many people would trade their health and condemn their eternal soul. But if they can just get what they want here and now, or what they think they want and think they need, they say they'd be happy. Jesus understood us better than that. He knows how discontent we are. We will ever want more, whatever the condition. And so Jesus went straight to the heart of the problem. And the problem is the heart, the human heart. Now, the purpose Verses 13 through 17. Jesus leaves the stunned crowd at the house and he takes a little lakeside stroll. And as he does, he happens to come across old Levi, or Matthew as we know him best, writer of the Matthew, uh, Gospel of Matthew, runs across him at his little tax booth. Or should we read shakedown stand? That's basically what it was. Um, and in that day, tax collectors were loathed and hated by both the Jews and anybody and everybody. They, they took from everybody an advantage that they could. They used their leverage. And that day, Levi was basically a combination of a loan shark and a collaborator with the enemy. I mean, they just don't get much worse than that. But amazingly, Jesus invites him or more or less invites 
himself to come home with Levi, kind of like he did with Zacchaeus. Hey, but he told Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. It's just either, either Jesus was assuming that or, or Matthew just started putting two and two together and said, no, wait a minute, okay, I'm going to follow him now. He said, follow him, okay. Well, hey, God, we got to eat. We got to get, get, you know, hey, so I, I'm, I'm going to, hey, Jesus, you want to come to my house tonight? I'm having some friends over. So that's what happened. And so Matthew decides, hey, I've got a new, I've got a new master. I need to show my appreciation. I need, to, I need to do something for the master. So he decides to do what any person in their right mind would do. He decides to throw Jesus a party as the honored guest. And he decides to include all his rowdy friends coming over tonight. He decides to go out and, hey, you know, all, all the rest of you that are, that are like me, they're outcast, a bunch of misfits, an assortment of outcasts and misfits. But all this, Jesus said, yeah, man, I'm in. <laughs> Let's do it. Now, where are our friends, the scribes and the Pharisees, teachers of the law? Where are they? Well, they're going, I can't believe this. This was too much for their fine upstandingness. They were thinking, how can a true rabbi do such things? That's inconceivable. Can't happen. So they asked the second question. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now notice who they ask it to. Did they ask Jesus? No. <laughs> Brave men that they were. Why did, hey, you disciples, why does your master eat with? But Jesus heard them. Remember, we already saw he perceived their hearts. Either way, it didn't matter. Whether he heard with the physical years, last time it said he'd have perceived their hearts. This time it says he heard them. Could have been both. And so Jesus responds to them in verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What a snapshot of Jesus as the friend of sinners. What an amazing thing that Jesus would go into such a place with some of the worst and vilest and sinful people in that area. He shows that he's the friend of sinners because he comes to find them, to find the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Jesus would say. He said the son of man came not to be served in, and later on in Mark, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Here is the stated purpose. Why I say this is the purpose of this section? It's the stated purpose of which Jesus came into the world, and he says it right here, to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
Now, probably the Pharisees and the scribes were sitting over there thinking, yeah, he should be calling those, those sinners to repentance. They're, they're really nasty, dirty folks. They need to do a lot of heavy repenting. <laughs> but Jesus, you see, that they, he, he, they got that. The Pharisees, though, their problem was this. They were just as needy as those sinners they had marked out and branded and cut themselves off from. They were just as needy and, matter of fact, more so because their self-righteousness obfuscated their true need as sinners. It put a barrier, a blinder in front of them that they could not see. They were nose-blind to their own stinking self-righteousness. You know what nose-blind is, don't you? You know, you, you got that pair, went out and ran, the, ran a couple miles today, and you left that pair of socks uh, and, and shoes uh, in the, in the uh, living room. And, uh, but after a while, you sit down, and they don't, they don't stink anymore. They, they don't smell anymore to you. Somebody else walks in the room and says, oh, whoo. They were nose-blind to their own self-righteousness. You see, they were the worst. Not that they didn't need when Jesus was saying, he's saying, you guys are so far gone, you don't even have a clue of how sinful you are. But I didn't come for the self-righteous prigs like you. I came to find the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I came for those that are broken, for those that have messed up and know it and admit it and go in the witness box against themselves and know that they've messed up their lives and their only hope is me. And they come to me gladly and I party with them. I welcome them. One day I'm the one that's going to be throwing a party for sinners like that that own their sinfulness and then repent and believe and follow Jesus. You see, Jesus did not, hear carefully, this is an important application. Jesus did not, and his followers should not. He didn't, you and I should not. Isolate themselves, isolate ourselves from a broken and needy world. Nor should we assimilate into it. Adopt its values. When somebody stands up, a politician, and says, this is okay now. No, we don't adopt those values if they're contrary to the Word of God. The Word of God remains true, and it doesn't change. But we are not to isolate ourselves in our stained glass ghetto and try to keep all the bad people out. No, we're here so we can find those bad people and introduce them to Jesus. We're to be looking like Jesus is looking for them. We're to be eating with them, inviting them, and making friends with them. As God gives us providential opportunity. So you see, the answer is not isolation, nor is it assimilation, it is mission. It is a life of mission that you and I are called to. Everything else is waiting for us there. We're here now. That's part and parcel of what we are called to do.
Now there's a problem here also. That's found in verses 18 through 22. Jesus is telling the real reason that he came. Unfortunately, in their blindness, they couldn't see it. They didn't even recognize it. But there's a problem because things are about to intensify, as we're going to see next week especially. In 18 verses, 18 through 22, Jesus' critics had made another troubling discovery. They found out that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees, their, their Padawans, their apprentices, they knew that they were all fasting and making a good show of it, letting you know how much. See, uh, see how skinny my ribs are getting there? Yeah, they, they wanted you to know how much they were fasting. And yet, here was Jesus and his disciples, and they weren't fasting at all. They were yucking it up, eating, partying, going to places like the wedding feast of Canaan and Galilee where the wine's literally overflowing. An abundance? What's wrong with this rabbi? So they ask him this question in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to them, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? Jesus, give us an accounting. You're on the clock. You better have a good excuse, a good reason for this. Well, Jesus decides to answer their question in a twofold manner. First, he basically says, Are you kidding me? You ever been to a wedding, dudes? Those back then, they weren't just a little afternoon punching fair that sometimes weddings are. It was a whole week of incredible partying. And when the bride and the groom are there, you don't leave. You hang around. And you certainly don't go fasting. He says, when, the, when a wedding's going on with the bride and the groom are together, are you kidding me? And he says, there'll be a time for, if the, one day, if the groom isn't there, there'll be a time to fast, to be sad, to have a reason for that. But he said, not now. <laughs> you cut it all wrong. You guys ought to, be, ought to be thanking God and partying at the coming of Jesus, of my coming, because I am the bridegroom. He calls himself that very name. That probably shocked them. And then secondly, he gives two illustrations of how new things don't fit in old things. He gives two illustrations of his day, but basically they're just showing you, hey, you can't put square pegs in round holes. And if you do, it won't work. New patches, new wineskins. Put them on something old, old wineskins, it's going to burst them. Put the patch on it, it's going to rip. Some of you tried to do that, got your parents maybe tried to uh, put patches on your jeans, and yet when you wash them, new patch on the old, came right off. You know about the wineskins. Wineskins were animal skins. They had a degree of flexibility. So when making wine, by the way, if it was grape juice, it wouldn't have done this. This is wine. It's got alcohol. It has a fermentation process, and it starts expanding. And, and if it's not contained, but the wineskins give if they're new. If they're old and they're rigid and inflexible, 
You put the new wine in, it's going to burst and everything's destroyed. Wine and wineskins. Now, what's Jesus really trying to say here? He's saying, I came to bring new life. I came to bring an abundant life. And what I bring in myself is expansive, like fermentation, not restrictive. And you people, all you know how to do is restrict and tighten down and hedge about and put fence after fence after fence on what God really said. And Jesus would later have some more than unflattering words for people that would do this kind of thing. He took up the standard and went to war against this in his coming. We'll see that more clearly next week. You see, the new life of Christ is expansive, not restrictive. Have you ever seen um, how around here we don't get as much fall, of course, in this area? But we do get a little bit. I mean, you know, at least we can say we have a season. I mean, our leaves do change. And, and I'll watch sometimes when, you know, when the, when the, uh, our, our red maple starts, all these color, colors on it, and the winds start coming, and the rains start coming, and start knocking leaves off, and there they are. And, you know, you've got to go out and either rake them up or mow them up. I, I use the mower. It uh, does a lot faster job and less to rake up at the end. So, uh, but, you know, they fall off. Most of them fall off from the, from the conditions, the wind, the rain, or whatever. But sometimes be some leaves that'll just hang on up there and they just don't seem to come down now later on in the year in the new year after winter the spring starts to emerge you sometimes still see some of those leaves up there but they're brittle they're they're just one moment you touch them they're gone but what is it that all of a sudden they start dropping after after withstanding all of the winds and and rains and all the rest all the good and yet they're still there why What makes them start dropping? It's the life of the tree and the root that is pulsating, pushing sap up in and ultimately displaces, pushes out the old and the new has come. And that's what Jesus is saying. I come to give an abundant life. I came to bring you true life. And it's only in me. I'm the vine. You can only be the branches but my life will be expulsive. And instead of it being something you try to produce or try to control or try to manipulate or to try to rig, what I bring flows from within outside. It's not trying to fix and patch things with patches. The gospel of Jesus Christ an old writer said, brings an expulsive power of a new affection. What that old writer was saying, he was saying, when the gospel comes, and when you really understand what God has done for you, that brings a power that lets you move past other things. It expels and removes old things and lets the new things come. Do you remember what? The scripture, what Paul said, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has come. 
The old has passed away. The new has come. A new creation. That's what Jesus came to do, to liberate, to bring to his people, to sinners that needed it and knew it. They could have the abundant, surging life of Jesus. You see, folks, there's a big difference between sin management and gospel sanctification. Sin management is what the Pharisees were trying to do. They were trying to find a way they could get the rules limited enough and, 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 and specific enough that they could basically keep it. They wanted a helper. They wanted helpful tips, good advice. They didn't want a savior. The gospel says we have to go down and admitting our sin. We need to repent, believe, and then out of that, follow Jesus. Let the flow of his life in us. It is gospel that sanctifies. And when you mess up, you do it over again and again and again and again and again. You keep coming back to Jesus. You keep running back to Jesus, repenting, owning it, believe, and knowing that what that was on that screen, that's the righteousness he has provided for sinners like you and me. Why were the Pharisees repeatedly clashing with Jesus? Because they were essentially old wineskins, unable and unwilling to embrace the abundant life of Jesus Christ that he offers. Have you embraced it? Do you know that new surging life of Christ in you? Stay tuned as the conflict continues and intensifies. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, again, showing us, sending your Son, and sending now your Spirit until the work is done. Lord, there's so much, so much we still have to learn, so much we, we've, we've learned and have forgotten and need to be reminded of. And Lord, thank you that, that we're not about the business of managing sin. We need something stronger than that. We need to be in the grip of stronger stuff than that. Lord, we need to have the life of your son continuing to pulse inside of us. Lord, expelling those things that, that we shouldn't be doing and being involved with, or chasing, longing after. Oh, Father, we pray, oh God, that you would give us, Lord, more and more of the, of the power of the life to, of the, of the, of the uh, age to come. Through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, we believe in him, we trust him. Lord, help us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.